Hello and welcome to The Celestial Tales, a podcast where we explore the night sky using both mythology and astronomy. In each episode, I, Gemma Kerr, will tell you a story that a culture has linked to a constellation, as well as describing some of its astronomical features and how you can observe them yourself. This week we'll be exploring the constellation of Cygnus, the Swan, through the ancient Greek tale of Orpheus. We'll discover the many powers of music and learn that, when an ancient Greek god is giving you instructions that your life literally depends on, it's a good idea to pay attention. As a quick note before we start, there are themes of death and grief in this episode, so check out the details in the episode description if that might be a problem. It was a beautiful day in the Kingdom of Thrace, a region covering parts of modern-day Bulgaria, Turkey and Greece. The sun was shining, the people were smiling, and the queen was about to give birth. Queen Calliope was one of the muses, the beautiful and talented goddesses of the arts. Her speciality was epic poetry, which she sang so beautifully that birds stopped singing to listen to her. But Calliope wasn't singing now, because the baby was on its way. Soon Calliope gave birth to an adorable little boy, who she named Orpheus. Almost as soon as he could talk, little Orpheus's talent in singing became obvious. Calliope taught her son verses of poetry, which they sang together, much to the delight of the king and to all of Thrace. But Orpheus had gained attention beyond his own kingdom. News of the little boy with the incredible voice had reached Mount Olympus, the home of the gods. And one god in particular was very interested. Apollo was one of the more important gods on Mount Olympus. He was involved in many areas of life, being a god of the sun, healing and prophecy, among others. Crucially, he was also the god of music. Orpheus had particularly captured his attention, so he travelled to Thrace with the intention of nurturing this young talent. Apollo gifted Orpheus a lyre made of gold. A lyre is a small stringed instrument, very much like a harp. They are very strongly associated with ancient Greece, and you'll often see them in art depicting these myths. It was, however, completely unfamiliar to Orpheus, as it had only just been invented by the gods. A little bewildered, the boy looked up at the god, who laughed and sat down to show him how to play. Orpheus picked up this new skill astonishingly quickly, soon learning to match a melody to the poetry his mother had taught him. As he grew older and more comfortable with the instrument, he began to make changes dare he say, improvements, to the design of the lyre. Eventually, he outperformed even Apollo's playing, and it was said that, while the gods had invented the lyre, Orpheus of Thrace had perfected it. Orpheus lay in the corner of the room, working on a new melody for his lyre, and half listening to his father talk with the other nobles. It had been a slow news day, and Orpheus felt his eyes begin to droop into a nap. Just then, a young man burst through the doors of the hall. He announced that his name was Jason, and that he was looking for a man named Orpheus. Orpheus tried to hide behind a column. This looked like it was going to be nothing but trouble. But it was too late. The king had already turned to look at his son as he welcomed Jason into the room. Orpheus stepped out quickly from behind the column and tried to act natural. So, uh, yeah, he was Orpheus. Who was Jason, and what did he want? 
Jason explained that he was the rightful king of a nearby kingdom, Iolcus, who had been banished by his evil uncle who wanted the throne for himself. Now he was on a legendary quest to retrieve the Golden Fleece and reclaim his throne. The Golden Fleece. The sheepskin, made of gold, famously guarded by a dragon that never sleeps. That will let you take back the throne how, exactly? asked Orpheus. Look, replied Jason, the Golden Fleece is a symbol of authority. It'll get me a lot of sway in Iolcus. Plus, my uncle challenged me to get it, so I'm gonna get it. Okay, responded Orpheus. Well, good luck with the perilous quest to steal some magic wool. Send me a postcard from Iolcus when you're back. Oh no, buddy, laughed Jason. There's been a prophecy that my quest will fail unless I take one Orpheus of Thrace with me. So get your stuff packed. See you on the ship in an hour. With that, Jason nodded to the king and left the hall to return to his ship. Not saying that he'd have much of a choice in the matter, Orpheus went to pack. This Jason guy seemed alright, actually, with a righteous determination which was hard not to follow. How bad could it really be? A quick sail to a distant land, pick up the fleece, and back to Thrace in no time. Maybe the change of scenery would give him some new songwriting inspiration. Six months later, Orpheus found himself grabbing a rope to tie back down, as their ship, the Argo, crashed up and down in the stormy waves. It had been a long, busy and dangerous trip, and the band of heroes that Jason had assembled to join him had very much bonded over these shared experiences. They were called the Argonauts, after the ship that carried them, and almost entirely consisted of people famous for being very strong, very fast, or otherwise very suited to adventuring. All except Orpheus, who had never really excelled at sports and had spent a lot of the voyage trying to figure out why he was there. He hadn't been able to help when they'd escaped from an island of murderers, or when they'd had to fight giants, or when they'd had to navigate through treacherous rocks. Orpheus felt useless, which made him miserable. How could he be of help to these people that he had grown so fond of, he wondered to himself. Slowly, in the edge of his mind, he started to notice a faint sound. It was beautiful, like an ethereal kind of singing that he had never heard before. It was quiet, but getting louder as they sailed closer to the source. What was that? His silent question was soon answered by Jason, who yelled from the front of the ship, Sirens! The warning cry sent panic among the crew. They'd heard of the sirens, creatures who used their enchanting singing to lure passing sailors onto the rocks and drown them. Men were running all over the ship, looking for anything to plug their ears, but it was no use. The song of the sirens was getting just too loud and too persuasive to ignore. Even Jason, who was resolute that they would not affect him, felt himself begin to ever so slightly turn the ship towards the sweet melody. But then another tune began. One that was, somehow, even sweeter, even more charming and coming from much closer by. In the panic, Orpheus had known exactly what to do. If there was one thing he knew, it was how to put on a show. He had grabbed his lyre and leapt onto a crate on deck. Losing no time, he began his song just as the Argo sailed within reach of the siren's magic. His song was utterly enchanting, but without needing to use any magic. It drowned out the siren's song and restored the courage of everyone on board. 
Orpheus kept playing until Jason had managed to sail them far away from the sirens. But even when they were safe, his friends begged him to continue. Thanks to Orpheus, they had lost only one man to the sirens, when it should have been all of them. It was time to celebrate, and to grieve, and to rest for the challenges ahead. Orpheus was more than happy to continue. He was beginning to understand the power that he and his music had. Life on board the Argo continued much as it had, every day full of danger, but also companionship. Orpheus was almost sad one day to see the outline of the land where the Golden Fleece was guarded. Jason had prepared a battle strategy, and as a group, they had gone over it, and over it, and over it, each man knowing their place in the plan. Now all they had to do was get past the dragon, the dragon that never slept, and that guarded the fleece with its life. That evening they came into shore, and every warrior crept into place along the sand, getting ready to surprise the dragon. Orpheus smiled at them from the ship. Everyone knew very well that he was no warrior, and besides, he wouldn't really be needed anyway. There were plenty of them. And then the dragon appeared. Almost immediately, Orpheus could tell there was a problem. Instead of surprising it, the dragon had surprised them, and Jason and his group were not ready. Orpheus watched as the plan fell apart, with several men trying to jab at it on their own. But it was too quick. Its razor-sharp teeth were doing just as much damage as Jason's warriors could do. Even with this large group of men, it was an evenly matched fight. And this meant that it went on for hours. Both sides taking damage, but neither one making much progress. As the night wore on, Orpheus saw that his friends were becoming exhausted. Their movements were not as skillful as they'd been a few hours ago. The dragon showed no such tiredness, and was starting to get some powerful hits in. That was when Orpheus had an idea. He wasn't sure it would work, but it was too hard to stand there and do nothing. Taking out his lyre, Orpheus began a simple and smooth tune. Rising and falling just as the ship had, getting deeper and slower and gentle. The dragon's eyes blinked once, then twice, and his body gradually curled around a tree. Finally, the dragon's head dropped to its paw, and its eyes closed fully as it let out a long sigh. Orpheus's lullaby had sent it, at last, to sleep. With its body coiled around on the floor, Jason was able to see past the dragon to the shining object hanging on the tree. He silently tiptoed around the sleeping enemy to retrieve their prize, the Golden Fleece. When everyone was safely on board the ship again, and the dragon out of earshot, the group cheered and clapped for Orpheus, whose music had yet again been their salvation. Jason grabbed Orpheus by the shoulder and pulled him into a tight hug, telling him that he'd never felt luckier for a prophecy than for the one that had told him to bring Orpheus on this great quest. Before they could return home, the Argonauts needed to gather supplies for the trip. They stopped in a nearby kingdom where, as well as food and water, Jason also gained a wife. He married the princess of that kingdom and brought her onto the Argo to sail home with them. The return journey was just as troublesome as the way out, but eventually the Argonauts once again set foot in Greece. The group slowly disbanded as each member made their way to their own kingdoms. Jason asked Orpheus if he would like to come to Iolcus with him and his new wife, and to see Jason return to the throne. 
Orpheus replied that he'd love to, but he really must get back to Thrace, and maybe he should give this marriage thing a try too. Orpheus had been half-joking, but it wasn't long after he crossed the border into Thrace that his half-joke became somewhat more serious. As he stopped in a valley to have lunch, and to practice a little tune he'd been working on about the beauty of nature, he met a young nymph named Eurydice. Nymphs are nature spirits, often depicted as attractive young women, dancing among the trees or rivers. Eurydice loved to dance, and it was Orpheus's lyre-playing that brought her out of hiding so she could dance to this totally new music. When the pair made eye contact, it was love at first sight. From then on, Orpheus was utterly devoted to Eurydice, writing her love songs and songs about nature. And she loved Orpheus too, always excited to listen and dance to his music. It wasn't long before the couple were married, in a simple ceremony outside in the sunshine. The songs that Orpheus played that day were the most joyful that had yet been heard on Earth or Mount Olympus. Family and friends danced with the bride as they partied into the evening. Unfortunately, that day could not remain perfect. A minor god had seen Eurydice and wanted her for himself. He chased her away from the party, and as she ran from him, she lost her footing and stepped on a venomous snake. The viper sank its fangs into her ankle. Orpheus, who had gone to look for his wife the second he had noticed her absence, arrived only to see her fall to the ground. He ran to her, but by then it was too late. Eurydice was dead. He howled in grief. This was too cruel. To be allowed only one day of marriage to the woman he loved was unthinkable. After crying and crying, Orpheus found that he could cry no more. His fingers, without him thinking about it, moved to the lyre at his belt. He played from the heart, a song so mournful, so filled with sorrow, that the nymphs in the woods around him came out of their trees to weep with him. Joined in pity for this man and their lost sister, the nymphs offered to show Orpheus the way to the underworld, if he would try to bring Eurydice back. It did not take Orpheus any time at all to consider this. He gladly accepted their offer and began on a quest of his own. A quest to bring back his beloved from the underworld itself. In ancient Greek mythology, the underworld is where all souls go when they die. It is ruled over by the god Hades and his wife Persephone. The couple also have a family dog, which guards the entrance to their home. Cerberus, the gigantic, jet-black, three-headed dog, was a pretty good guard dog on the rare occasions that somebody living would try to enter the underworld. However, as Orpheus was greeted by this intimidating sight, he remembered his experiences on the Argo, and felt pretty confident about this one. Playing a very similar lullaby to the one he had played the dragon, Orpheus was able to put Cerberus to sleep within a few minutes. After that, it was a long and gruelling trek through the underworld. It was a dark and desolate place, with a foul smell permeating the air. All around him creatures wailed and fought. Mainly by keeping to himself and keeping focused on Eurydice, 
Orpheus managed to make it all the way to the palace. He figured that the only way he'd be able to take Eurydice home was with Hades' permission. He stepped up to the large black door and knocked. The door opened and Orpheus was greeted by the sight of the god of the underworld and his queen. They stared at him, stony-faced, and Orpheus assumed they had only been allowed to live this long as he was a novelty to them. Not wanting to waste that chance, he began to play. More than any other song he had played before, this one was of real meaning to him. He sang of his love and told the tale of their painful separation. The music matched his voice in such a tragic harmony that Persephone, queen of the underworld, was moved to tears. Even Hades himself let out a single tear in sympathy for the musician, so powerful was his song. The song ended with Orpheus pleading, begging Hades to let him take Eurydice home. Hades reluctantly agreed, but there were conditions to be met. Hades couldn't simply allow souls to leave the underworld without hindrance. Orpheus and Eurydice would have to make their own way back to the gates, without him once being able to look at her. Orpheus must walk in front of his wife, and if he saw her face before they were both in the land of the living again, she would stay in the underworld forever. You get one chance. Orpheus gratefully thanked Hades for his generosity, and turned around. He sensed the familiar hand of Eurydice slip into his, and felt the overwhelming urge to turn and hug her. But he couldn't. Instead, he simply smiled a relieved smile, and began the long walk home. The trip was slower this time. With the two of them holding hands, totally unwilling to lose grip of each other in a place like this, the walking was slow and careful. Occasionally they had to hide from creatures that crossed their path, or go a long way round to avoid a fight that had broken out. But they were always careful to keep Eurydice out of Orpheus's sight. After what felt like weeks, and it could have been, it was hard to tell in the perpetual dark, Orpheus saw the circle of daylight coming from the tunnel at the entrance. Overjoyed, he picked up the pace, impatient to hold his wife in his arms again. When finally he left the tunnel and breathed in the clean air of the world of the living, he span around to finally look upon Eurydice's face. But this was the mistake that would ruin the rest of his life. Eurydice had been only a few steps behind him, but was, technically, still in the tunnel that was part of the underworld. The couple had only a second to look into each other's eyes before Eurydice dissolved, her arm outstretched towards her husband. For a minute or two, Orpheus couldn't move, frozen to the spot out of despair. Then frantically he scrambled back into the tunnel. He would just try again. But this time, the way was shut. The tunnel just led into the hill, not the underworld. The way was shut. He could not try again. He had lost her a second time. Orpheus collapsed onto the ground in shock and anger at himself for not waiting just one more second. He lay still for a long time, barely noticing when the night came. That night he made a promise to Eurydice, and to himself, that he would never love another woman. 
From that day on, Orpheus wandered Greece, playing odes to Eurydice, never really staying in one place for too long. He was utterly heartbroken, and all of Greece knew it. Never again did he play any of the sweet, joyful songs that had delighted his friends. Never again did he dance. Years later, when wandering through his old home of Thrace, Orpheus was discovered by a group of women. To them, Orpheus was an attractive prospect for a husband, being good-looking, noble, and talented. When Orpheus rejected each and every one of them, saying that his heart would forever belong to Eurydice, they were incredibly offended. Driven mad by this rejection, as well as the enchanting bitterness of his music, the women murdered Orpheus as he sang. The soul of Orpheus saw what had happened as it floated toward the underworld. Ah, he thought, that's how it ended. His one comfort through those dark years was that he would, eventually, be reunited with his beloved Eurydice in the underworld. He drifted through the earth until he found himself at the gates of the underworld. But as he watched other souls sail through the barrier, he found himself unable to follow them. Only then did he remember Hades' words. You get one chance. He hadn't thought that would apply to him when he died. But now, the horror of his situation dawned on him. He had already had his chance in the underworld, and he was still barred from entering again. He would not reunite with Eurydice. He was permanently and entirely separated from her. Looking down from Mount Olympus, the god Apollo, Orpheus's old mentor, saw the tragedy that had been his life and death. He took pity on the man and decided to help him. Raising Orpheus up into the sky, Apollo transformed him into a swan, whose dying songs are among the most beautiful sounds on the earth. He placed Orpheus the swan and his golden lyre in the sky as stars, where he's able to look down on the earth and be an inspiration to musicians for eternity. Before we move on to the astronomy section of the show, I do want to briefly mention some variations in the story that appear in other versions. I choose versions that I think make the most complete story when I put this together, but as with pretty much all myths, people disagree on the details. For example, in one version, after Orpheus dies, Apollo instead turns him into an oracle so he can give out prophecies to the people of Greece. This version doesn't end well for Orpheus either, though, as he takes pity on people in distress and gives out more information than the gods think is acceptable. Apollo then punishes Orpheus by placing him in the sky, as far away from Eurydice as he can get. Similarly, there are other accounts of how the dragon is defeated in the quest for the Golden Fleece with Jason's new wife supplying a sleeping potion to much the same effect as Orpheus's lullaby. I should say that the quest for the Golden Fleece, and the whole story of Jason and the Argonauts, is far longer and far more complex than we had time for today. It's one of the most famous stories from ancient Greek myth, so we may well cover it in a later episode, but I really wanted the focus today to be on Orpheus and his story. At the end of Orpheus's life, he and his lyre are placed in the sky as the constellations of Cygnus, the swan, and next to it Lyra, the lyre. 
Cygnus is a huge constellation, taking up a large area of the sky. It is one of the most easily recognisable constellations too, being mostly made up of a large cross. The five brightest stars in Cygnus form the bases of this cross, and together are known as the Northern Cross. This is an asterism, which is the name we give to a smaller pattern within a constellation. Other famous asterisms include Orion's Belt, from last episode, the Plough, and the Southern Cross. One star in the Northern Cross, Deneb, is also part of another asterism. The Summer Triangle is an asterism of three bright stars from nearby constellations. Deneb and Vega are the brightest stars in Cygnus and Lyra, respectively, and, when joined by Altair from a neighbouring constellation, they form the three points of the Summer Triangle. Both the Summer Triangle and the Northern Cross can be used to help locate the Milky Way. All the stars we can see from Earth are part of our galaxy, the Milky Way, but because of its shape and our place within it, there is a concentrated band of stars running right across the sky. This hazy band is what we mean when we talk about finding the Milky Way in the sky. It can be surprisingly difficult to locate if you don't know exactly what you're looking for. However, once you've found the iconic shape of the Northern Cross, or the three bright stars of the Summer Triangle, you're nearly there. The Milky Way runs right through the Northern Cross, and in between the other two stars of the Summer Triangle. Deneb, the star that is both in the Northern Cross and the Summer Triangle, is interesting in its own right. It's a supergiant star, and one of the brightest we know about, at over 60,000 times brighter than the Sun. Because it's so far away, around 1400 light years away, it doesn't seem quite that bright from Earth, and is the 19th brightest star in the sky. One of the reasons it's such a bright star is that it's very hot, shining a bluish white light. Moving up the body of the swan, from Deneb at its tail, the beak end of the swan is represented by a star known as Alberio. Alberio is actually an optical binary star, meaning that where it looks like there's just one star, there are actually two. The stars line up so closely from our line of sight on Earth that it's difficult to distinguish between them. Alberio is a particularly popular binary to observe because its constituent stars are different colours. The brighter of the two shines yellow, while its companion is a shade of blue. It is possible to separate out these two stars with a small telescope, so do give that a go if you have the opportunity. Being such a large constellation, Cygnus covers an area of sky filled with interesting objects. An example are open clusters. These are regions filled with lots of stars of a similar age, loosely bound together by gravity. So, unlike the stars of Alberio, which just seem close together in the sky, stars in an open cluster are actually close together in space, and interact with each other through gravity. There are many such clusters in Cygnus, but a good one to try and spot yourself is M39, Follow the direction of the swan's body a little way out past Deneb. M39 covers an area of sky around the same size as the moon and is visible to the naked eye, although a good pair of binoculars will allow you to see more. Search in that area and you could see up to 30 or so stars close together. Cygnus is visible from anywhere north of a latitude of 40 degrees south, but is easiest to see from the northern hemisphere. If you're trying to locate Cygnus in the night sky, your location and the time will determine where it is. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere, Cygnus can be observed easily between June and December, and by the time it gets dark, 
is usually high up in the sky. In the southern hemisphere, Cygnus can be observed from July to October and will be low down in the northeastern sky. Wherever you are, try to find the recognisable shape of the Northern Cross, and then you can confirm you have the right constellation by checking for either of the other two stars in the Summer Triangle. Compared to some other constellations, I think it's reasonable to see a swan in the shape of Cygnus, with bright Deneb at the tail, binary star Alberio at the head of a long neck, and the remaining stars stretching out to form the wings of the swan. The tale of Orpheus is not the only myth to be linked to this constellation, though. Swans feature quite often in ancient Greek mythology, and many other stories have been linked to Cygnus. One tale describes Zeus, king of the gods, taking the form of a swan, and others describe more mortal men being turned into swans for various reasons. It may be that I can cover these stories in another episode sometime, but for now, when I look at Cygnus and Lyra, I will remember the story of Orpheus. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing to it. And if you have time, then rating or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts would help me and the show out massively. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tales Celestial. Come back next time when we'll be exploring another constellation, hearing a story from a completely different culture, and discovering more about the astronomical features behind it all. I'm Gemma Kerr, and this has been The Celestial Tales. Thanks again for listening. See you soon.